This is Seeking Peace on Earth, the Peace Talks radio special. Stay tuned for an hour of compelling conversations with people devoted to reducing conflict and promoting peace in our lives. The first part of the compassion cannot extend towards your enemy. The second part of infinite compassion, compassion with wisdom, that can extend towards your enemy. If we let go of trying to get more of what we don't really need, it frees up tons of energy to turn and make a difference with what you already have. Environmental stress, like climate change, in combination with other factors, it can lead to violence. It can lead to societal breakdown. It can lead to enormous trauma within societies. I am talking about genuine peace, not merely peace in our time, but peace in all time. Stay tuned for Seeking Peace on Earth, the Peace Talks radio special. We devoted one program to conversations with two women who, well into their 80s, were still devoted to working for peace. Although their approaches were different, we learned that both Ruth Ember and Juanita Nelson enjoy putting their peacemaking experiences to poetry and prose. Now 83 and living in Albuquerque, New Mexico, Ruth Ember has been active in social causes since the 1940s. And, well, she'll tell you all about it in a piece she calls Circles. Young, strong, and determined we marched in the 40s, our slogans resounding for justice and truth. Free speech, join the union, no nuclear weapons. We believed in the future, we believed in ourselves. We won some, we lost some. The struggle goes on. In the 50s, we parents were pushing our strollers as we circled again for freedom of speech. We can't let McCarthy take our liberties from us. Our passion for freedom conquered our fear. We won some, we lost some. The struggle goes on. In the 60s, we marched in circles once more. Civil rights was our passion. We shall overcome But the protests, they blurred into never-ending circles. I was tired, discouraged. What's the use? What's the point? We won some, we lost some. How long? For how long? Then I looked around, and the answer was clear. For there in the circle, one marcher stood out. Young, strong, and determined, my teenage daughter had joined in the circle, had made her voice count. We win some, we lose some, the struggle goes on. That's 83-year-old activist Ruth Ember. At 86, Juanita Nelson continues to live simply in Deerfield, Massachusetts, in a small house she and her late husband Wally built many years ago. No plumbing, no electricity. Juanita and Wally were committed to living below the taxable income line for many, many years so their dollars wouldn't go to support the military. Juanita wrote the Outhouse Blues to describe the challenge of living her values. Well, I went out to the country to live a simple life, get away from all that concrete, and avoid some of that strife. Get off the backs of poor folks, stop supporting Uncle Sam and all that stuff he's putting down like bombing Vietnam. Oh, but it ain't easy, especially on a chilly night, when I beat it to the outhouse with my trusty dim flashlight. The seat is absolutely frigid. 
not a BTU of heat. That's when I think the simple life is not for us elite. Well, I try to grow my own food, competing with the bugs. I even make my own soap and my own ceramic mugs. I figure that the less I buy, the less I compromise with Standard Oil and ITT and those other gouging guys. Oh, but it ain't easy to leave my cozy bed to make it with my flashlight to that air-conditioned shed. When the seat's so cold it takes away that freedom ecstasy, that's when I fear the simple life maybe wasn't meant for me. Well, I cook my food on a wood stove and heat with wood also, though when my parents left the South I said, this has got to go. But I figure that the best way to say all folks are my kin is try to live so I don't take nobody's pound of skin. Oh, but it ain't easy when it's rainy and there's mud to put on my old bathrobe and walk out in that crud. I look out through the open door and see a distant star and sometimes think this simple life is taking things too far. But then I get to thinking, if we're ever going to see the end of that old con game, the change has got to start with me. Quit wheeling and quit dealing to be a leader in any band, and it appears the best way is to get back to the land. If I produce my own needs, I know what's going down. I'm not quite so footsie with those Wall Street pimps in town. Because let me tell you something, though it may not be good news. If some folks win, you better know somebody's got to lose. So I guess I'll have to cast my lot with those who are opting out. And even though on freezing nights I will have my nagging doubts, long as I talk the line I do and spout my way out views, I'll keep on using the outhouse and singing the outhouse blues. <laughs> 86-year-old tax resistor and peace activist Juanita Nelson reading her outhouse blues on Peace Talks Radio. This is Seeking Peace on Earth, the Peace Talks Radio special. Peace Talks Radio is the series about peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. On our programs, we spotlight the art and science of peacemaking throughout history and in our lives today. Whether it's the search for inner peace or learning how to resolve conflicts we have with others in our families, workplaces, communities, or between nations, we consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and on this special edition, some compelling moments from recent episodes. On one program, we considered inner peace in a very literal way, as we looked inside the brain with scientists who are learning that the brain can be trained, in effect, to not only experience less stress, but also to help a person respond more compassionately and peacefully to the world. UCLA's Dan Siegel, author of The Mindful Brain, is a leading researcher in the field, and he talked with one of our hosts, Suzanne Kreider. Dan Siegel, you spoke at our research symposium with the Dalai Lama at the Seeds of Compassion Conference in Seattle in April of 2008. And the symposium was titled, The Scientific Basis for Compassion, What We Know Now. And when you spoke, you explained that when people feel threatened, they make a bigger distinction between who is like and unlike them. And you asked the Dalai Lama about how people can stay open to others particularly at times of threat. Yes. Let's listen to his response. So usually I made the distinction, the compassion. Uh, There are two kinds. One, biased, limited. One, unbiased, unlimited. Now, biological factor, that compassion is limited, biased. Uh, That, I think, common with other animals. 
Now we have a special brain, this intelligence. So with help of intelligence, with help of right view, as a social animal, we here, we are not isolated from the rest of the six billion human beings. So that love or kindness now infinite, unbiased. The first part of the compassion cannot extend towards your enemy. The second part of infinite compassion, compassion with wisdom, that can extend towards your enemy through training now, through utilized human intelligence. So the Dalai Lama said there are two kinds of compassion, a biological limited compassion and an intelligent unlimited compassion. I'm wondering if the research supports the concept of unlimited compassion. Dr. Siegel, can we really overcome this primal response we have of fight or flight when we feel threatened? I think there is evidence now that loving relationships can create that first biological, limited, biased form of compassion. And that's something that every child on this planet should be given the opportunity to have, that supportive relationships generate that kind of compassion we have for those near to us. But then the Dalai Lama said, as you pointed out, with mind training, for example, in mindfulness practice, you can move beyond your biological tendencies. You can actually begin to stop being imprisoned by the natural biological reflexes we have that when we're threatened, we shut off our circuits of compassion and that we don't see from another person's point of view um, at those moments of being threatened. So with mind training, with mindfulness training, you can, in fact, uncouple automatic reactions. You can awaken the mind and stop being on automatic pilot. Now, what this suggests is that we have a responsibility to bring this kind of mindfulness practice, this reflective skill, into the world of education and into the world even of adults who can continue to learn across the lifespan so that, if you will, we have a reflective science, a, a form of reflective skills we can teach based on science that actually widen our circles of compassion and dissolve what Albert Einstein called the optical delusion of our separateness. And we come to realize, in fact, we're all a part of one human family. The practices come from the Buddhist tradition. Is there any resistance that people are afraid they're being programmed or that researchers are proselytizing to them? You know, it's a really important question about the origins of these practices. And in the mindful brain, what I tried to explore was the fact that every culture has a mindfulness practice and teaching. It's been around for literally over 2,500 years in different traditions. And now it's practiced in the East and the West. And in modern times, what's happened is that researchers have gotten interested in the claims that have been across these cultures. And when you do research, you've got to pick one particular method and study it. And so it just happens that some of the methods that have been most studied have been from the Buddhist tradition of this insight meditation, otherwise known as mindfulness meditation. And so people like John Kabat-Zinn and Richie Davidson have explored the non-religious application in medical settings of 
these ancient practices. So there's absolutely nothing religious about it. Now, once you do the research where you're studying the effects on the brain and the effects on the immune system, the effects on your relationships with others, and your own reporting of how your mind feels that it has more clarity and balance, you come to a scientific fact that mindfulness practice improves the health of the brain, it improves the health of our relationships with each other, and improves the health of the mind. That's just absolutely clear from science. This is not a religious practice. This is a form of brain hygiene. You know, it's actually unbelievably simple, but it's just a matter of people taking the time and having the intention to create a time of the day where even if it's just for five minutes, you have a practice that we call a mindful awareness practice that involves focusing, let's say, on your breathing and having an awareness of where your awareness is focused. So, for example, if you do a breathing exercise or if you choose to do centering prayer or yoga or tai chi or any of the wide array of mindfulness practices, they each share in common the fact that you are being aware of your awareness And when your awareness wanders, when you get distracted, you lovingly and gently return your focus of attention to what you intended to be focused on. But this sounds kind of tiring. I have to be aware that I'm aware. You know, it's actually the opposite of tiring, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Hearing the the phrase aware of awareness may be tiring because it's a little complicated, but it's actually quite simple and energizing. Instead of it taking time, it actually expands time for you where the time you do have, not just in your practice, but during the day, is made richer and more interesting. And so it feels like you've had a fuller day that's been more rewarding rather than actually taking more time. That's brain researcher Dan Siegel, author of the book The Mindful Brain, talking with Suzanne Kreider on Peace Talks Radio. I should say right away that if you're interested in hearing more about any of the topics touched on in this special edition of Peace Talks Radio Highlights, You can hear the complete episodes anytime online at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. When challenging economic times hit, everyone gets a chance to rethink their relationship with money. It's a relationship that leads to a lot of conflict for some and less for others. Lynn Twist is author of the book The Soul of Money, and she told Suzanne Kreider she doesn't think it's fair to say that money causes problems for us. Uh, I don't think money uh, does anything to people. I think people's inner conflict around money is their own creation. Money's kind of the innocent victim in the whole thing, if you if you uh, know what I mean. Money's neutral. Money uh, has no power except the power that we give it. And we assign it so much emotional value, so much psychological power. We even give given it kind of spiritual power over us that we have tremendous inner conf- conflict over money. Uh, pretty much everybody does. Even the wealthy have inner con- conflict over money. Our culture uh, is confused and upset around money. Um, We live in what's now uh, an intense tyranny of a consumer culture, a commercialized, monetized consumer culture. So everyone alive today, not just in the United States, but it's really heavy and intense in the United States, lives in a consumer culture that uh, tells them that they need to be something that they're not. 
Lynn, you refer to Buckminster Fuller's radical surprising truth, there is enough for everyone. And you say that enough is a context, not an amount. Can you explain that, what a context is? Well, uh, we're so enamored with content, which means how much, you know, how much money, how much time, how many emails, how much, uh, how much, much we've eaten or how much we haven't eaten. We're just obsessed with amounts and measurements. What really shifts things in life and changes the game is not the content of life, but the frame or context in which we perceive or from which we perceive life. And that's where we all have enormous amount of power. And so when I, uh, when I talk about the context of sufficiency um, or the context of enough, I uh, want to kind of remove people from this uh, trying to understand, well, what is enough? Is it uh, this much money in the bank or this much money in retirement? I'm not really, uh, I don't want to get caught with people in that conversation, but rather that there is a space and a place to live from where you start to experience the enoughness of life, that the needs of, of you and me and really the needs of life are met, sometimes in miraculous and exquisite ways, and that if we let go of trying to get more of what we don't really need, it frees up tons of energy to turn and make a difference with what you already have. When you make a difference with what you have, it expands. That's a context or a principle of sufficiency. Lynn Twist, author of The Soul of Money. In the Peace Talks radio episode about our conflict over money, Suzanne Kreider also talked with financial consultant Brent Kessel, who wrote a book called It's Not About the Money. We've been talking about how to make peace internally with how we deal with money. Let's talk about how we can use our money to make peace on the planet. Will you tell the story from your book about your friend Bob Patillo's son? Oh, it's a great story. I was actually just with Bob last week. And yeah, Gus is his son, who at the time I think was... uh, was 15 or, or 13, I'd probably say it in the book, I don't quite recall. Bob and Gus are driving along. I think He actually told me, it's not in the book, but he told me just last week that they were in the parking lot of like a, a Walmart or something like that, and they see this van uh, being loaded by a group of nuns. And Bob says, let's pull over and see what they're up to. And so they pull over and they go and ask the nuns, and the nuns say, well, we, we run an orphanage for kids. And I think this is December 23rd that this happens. And the nuns say to Bob and Gus, the orphanage burned down um, two days ago, and all of the gifts that we had had donated for the orphans burnt down, you know, with the orphanage. And so, we, you know, we got the store, again, I don't remember which one it was, to agree to donate, you know, some of their slightly damaged merchandise as gifts for the kids. You know, Gus and Bob helped them load the van. And Bob had instituted an allowance system that I call three buckets in, uh, in the book, where and I do this with both of my kids who are only seven and five, where essentially you give them an allowance, but then you split that into three buckets, one for spending, one for giving away, and one for saving for the future. The way Gus and Bob did this is they just carried the balances on a little three-by-five card, and Bob would essentially give Gus the money when he needed it and deduct it. So Gus says to Bob, Dad, tell me how much I have in my giving bucket you know, on the card there. And Bob pulls the card out and says, you've got $26. And Gus says, great, I'd, I'd like to give the nuns $20 of it to help the orphans. 
you know, Bob was just very deeply moved by his son's compassion and generosity. And every time he tells the story, he just tears up. It's a, it's a very sweet fatherly moment. How much should we give? The problem with the word should is it's a, uh, you know, it's kind of externally imposed. It's, you know, it can be externally imposed. What would my parents tell me is the right amount to give? What does the culture tell me? What does my religious leader tell me? And I really like to ask people to go inside themselves and figure out what experience they're having from their giving. What I've found, though, is that if it's not a little bit uncomfortable, if you're not stretching yourself, then you're really operating too much from within your archetype's comfort zone, and you're not going to create real balance. So you kind of got to have a little bit of a tremble, you know, when you actually write the check or swipe the credit card or, or commit to how much you're going to give away this year. Most importantly, go inside yourself and figure out where the edge is and then just go just a little bit beyond it. Financial advisor Brent Kessel with Suzanne Kreider. Just ahead, we'll hear some of the debate over whether or not violent video games contribute to violence in our world and how climate change might threaten peace, plus more. You're listening to Seeking Peace on Earth, the Peace Talks radio special. I'm Paul Ingalls. More after a break. This is Seeking Peace on Earth, the Peace Talks Radio special. Highlights from recent episodes of Peace Talks Radio, a series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. You can visit us online and support our work at peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Every few months, it seems, a new, more realistic version of a violent video game is released to great fanfare. The debate is then renewed about whether the violent content of the game somehow contributes to violence in our society. We assembled a panel on Peace Talks Radio that included media scholar and activist Bob McCannon. And first, here's University of Southern California professor Dimitri Williams responding to my question whether he thought parents were justified to be concerned about video game violence. Parents are, are certainly allowed to be concerned with whatever they like to be concerned with. Uh, I, it's not my job or any researcher's job to say, don't worry. But what we can do is present some data and put things in a larger context and ask what are the things you should be worried about? We are often afraid of the wrong things. And when we are having national concerns about child abductions and child violence, we want to think about, well, what are the causey things? It's very easy to say, well, it's because of coarse media or problems, rather than thinking that it might be something more systemic or disturbing, like uh, we have you know, rampant abuse of children by relatives and by um, uh, friends and family members. It's not strangers. It's not the video game boogeyman. It's the people we know. And that the causes of abuse and neglect might very well be matched with, say, poverty 
um, or malnutrition. Um, and, and these are social and systemic forces that are much more difficult, much more complicated to talk about. And it's far easier to say, you know, it was Ozzy Osbourne, uh, it was the Beatles, it was the video game. Now, as I said before, those things may well turn out to be part of the problem, but we should always be a little bit cautious when we go to the easy fix rather than confronting the systemic stuff that might be disturbing to us personally. What I hear from some people who are concerned about the possible negative effects of violent media on kids or adults is that the sheer volume and growing intensity of violent images can't be helping any. Um, I have to give you a mixed answer on this. I don't want to be a complete naysayer, um, so people think I'm a nut and I'm just defending anything. But um, almost anything can be turned into good or bad, depending on the context in which it's viewed and the kind of person who views it. You can take what I would consider morally objectionable content, like the stuff that's in Grand Theft Auto. Now, I wouldn't let my extremely small children play that. I have a five-year-old, and uh, my daughter is not going to be playing that anytime soon. She's not necessarily capable of distinguishing fantasy from reality and she's much more impressionable and that's my read of my daughter Um, however when she gets a little bit older and probably younger than the box rating i might play that game with her and we would talk about what's right and wrong and so something which is objectionable in the face can be turned into a teaching tool but the necessary condition there is that i'm there as a guide i'm there to redirect so I, i tend to be of the parenting school of thought that I will expose my children to lots of stuff, but I'll be there to moderate it and help interpret and give my children the literacy skills to um, then deal with it on their own. And a lot of the problems um, that we run into are when parents buy the box based on a rating or without looking at a rating and never interact with their children and don't talk to them about it, don't understand what meanings the kids are making out of it. And that's just kind of throwing your kids to the wolves. And I don't care what the medium is. Dimitri Williams from the University of Southern California. Media educator Bob McCannon would say that the wolves are in charge of the hen house as it is. I asked him to respond to the most common defenses of violence in video games, or television and movies for that matter. One being that entertainment producers are only following the demand. Violent movies, violent TV shows, and violent games draw big audiences, they say. So we're giving the audience what it wants. Well, this is what we call the drug pusher defense. And you hear this a lot from Doug Lowenstein, who's the head of the video game, um, the video game manufacturer's PR operation. He says it all the time. Well, s- kids would probably uh, use, use cocaine and crack and, and uh, dope if we made it available to them uh, regularly. But we don't. The simple fact of the matter is that we have age requirements for buying alcohol. We have age requirements for many things that are not good for kids. Video game defenders say that to those who might propose video game censorship legislation, that the First Amendment protects the media from restrictions on violent content. Well, it's interesting to me that the First Amendment was actually designed to protect individuals and to protect Individuals with minority interests. That's what the founding fathers had in mind when they designed uh, the First Amendment. However, um, today the First Amendment is being used most of all by the entertainment industry. The entertainment industry says all the responsibility should be on the parents. Parents, you do the supervision. You be the people with the sole responsibility for turning it on, turning it off, knowing what's in every video game, knowing what's in every movie, and 
being the guardian of your kid's mental health. We, the entertainment industry, have no responsibility. We have a First Amendment right to pump all the crap we want into your kid's culture. Well, you know what? I don't buy that, especially since their rating systems don't seem to function very well and are deliberately designed to be misleading, deliberately designed to be ineffective. Now, remember, I'm not saying that all video games are bad and that there are not excellent video games out there, but these kilographic video games where you basically do nothing but kill they should not be in the hands of youngsters. Okay, so when you suggest writing their legislators, are you talking about them asking for government regulation? Absolutely. We we rec- we regulate all sorts of things in this culture, and um, no one would stand for uh, pumping raw, hardcore pornography into a young child's head. Well, what's the distinction between pumping all sorts of different ways to interactively, in ever more realistic virtual environments, kill, mangle, maul, blow up, shoot? Um, You can't tell me that that is not just another kind of pornography. If you did have parents coming to one of your workshops or one of your presentations and saying, I am ready to step up with my own kids. What can I do? What should I be doing? What would you be telling them? I tell parents that the most important thing for their kids' developing brain is to talk with them. The neurophysiological research on this is conclusive. Talking uh, with kids helps develop that very plastic growing brain of kids that is doing about 85% of its growing from ages 0 to 15. It is important to talk with kids. The next most important thing is to read with your young kids and to play with your young kids. And and when they are young, uh, ages 2 to 8, it's really important to develop habits of self-directed, constructive, active play. When you are watching a video game, very few cells of the brain and the body are involved compared to active, uh, self-directed, creative play. That's media scholar and media reform activist Bob McCannon from our Peace Talks radio episode that explored the possible impact of violent video games on violence levels in our society. Other researchers we talked with on another program believe that global climate change might very well be contributing to global conflict. When climate change activist Al Gore shared the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize, Carol Boss, one of our Peace Talks radio hosts, talked with Canadian climate researcher Thomas Homer Dixon. Let me ask you what you think about the impact of the awarding of the um, Nobel Peace Prize to Al Gore and um, to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. I think it's good. I think that uh, I think that people do need to recognize that uh, climate change has security implications. The key thing is that I think our research has shown, uh, the research that we did many years ago has shown that environmental stress, like climate change, can have big security implications in combination with other factors, it can lead to violence. It can lead to 
societal breakdown. It can lead to uh, in, enormous trauma within societies. So uh, for, for both those reasons, I think it was good news that uh, the Nobel Peace Prize went to both the IPCC and Al Gore because these are genuinely security issues. Now, that is a controversial position the uh, committee took, and these the statements I'm making are are controversial. There's some people who think that climate change doesn't have any security implications at all, but I think they're wrong. There are some societies that appear to adapt really well to environmental stress, and others suffer, as you have written, from migrations and from worsened poverty and other factors as well. Why do some societies successfully adapt while others don't? Well, that's really the $64,000 question. Uh, And it really relates to the issue of climate change. Uh, Are we going to have the capacity to respond creatively with innovation, with solutions to the climate change challenge that we're facing? There are things that actually, in some societies, stop the delivery of solutions. Uh, actually prevents societies from responding. Even though problems are getting harder, those societies can't respond. And so in many of the cases we were looking at, we started to dig under the surface and look at the things that would keep uh, people and governments and institutions from effectively solving their problems. And something that comes up over and over again is the power of special interests who want to maintain the status quo and block any useful reform. In the Philippines, Uh, there was a period of time after the Marcos regime collapsed when there was a real push for land reform. And land reform, uh, redistributing land to poor people in the Philippines is probably a prerequisite to solve their environmental problems. Um, You need to be able to give people property rights. You need to be able to give them the right to some land so they have an incentive to take care of it. and there was, a, there was a sense for a year or so that things were really going to change, that there was, going to be a, uh, there was really going to be serious land reform in the country. But then it was blocked, as it is so often in many of these societies, by powerful landowners and special interests who just wanted to maintain the land arrangements the way they've always been. And that was a, a, an opportunity that was, was wasted, and it was a crippling blow to the, the progress of the country in dealing with its problems. And that's, an, that's the kind of thing, the power of special, special interests, the kind of factor that gets in the way of societies solving their problems. That, that means that they can't close the ingenuity gap, as I call it. Do you have, off the top of your head, some ideas about how people can wrap their heads around some of these issues and do something in their lives? First of all, I think it's really important that people realize that climate change in particular, which I think is probably ultimately the most threatening environmental challenge human beings will ever face, that climate change is not just a matter of the temperature getting warmer outside. It's going to affect every aspect of our economies and societies and the way we live, and especially the lives of our children and our grandchildren, because the biggest impacts are going to manifest themselves later in this century. Uh, and, and it will have effects on not just quality of life, but on life, period. It's going to affect whether societies can actually maintain themselves as stable, coherent, productive enterprises. 
So that's the first thing that I think people need to realize. The second thing is that climate change is a, is a tractable problem. It's a problem we can solve. We have the technology, you know, like they used to say in the six million dollar man. You know, it, it, we can we can do this. Uh, it's mostly about will. It's about m- mobilization. It's about political leadership, and it's about action at the individual and community level. Fifty percent of the climate change problem is going to be solved by things that people do in their households and in their communities. Individual changes that people make in how much energy they consume, what kind of technologies they use, what kind of lifestyles they lead. We don't have to sacrifice quality of life here, but we do have to change the way we live, uh, probably fairly significantly. And we can still be very, very happy, though. Uh, And that's stuff that can start right now. Uh, You know, people deride Al Gore when he talks about changing light bulbs. But the first step is changing a light bulb. There's a lot more that needs to be done, and a lot of it's going to be a lot harder than changing a light bulb. But the first thing you need to do is think about the simple things and the easy things, and then you can go on to the harder. And it's possible for everybody to do that. Some of it can be personal at the level of the household. Some of it can be in terms of our own lifestyle practices. And some of it can be in the level of our political our political mobilization and and lobbying for changes in government policies, and in particular giving courageous political leaders who want to do the right thing the cover that they need, the support they need to go ahead and do it. Uh, and uh, and that, that happens one conversation, one conference, one letter to the editor, one article to a community newspaper, one dinner discussion at a time. Dr. Thomas Homer Dixon oversees the Peace and Conflict Studies Department at the University of Toronto. He spoke with our interviewer, Carol Boss. You're listening to Seeking Peace on Earth, the Peace Talks radio special. And ahead, when people mix elements of street theater, humor, and drama into nonviolent public action, does it work to promote peace and justice? Also, could you actually literally not hurt a fly? And does that restraint contribute to a more peaceful world? And the vision for peace John F. Kennedy laid out in 1963, just months before he died. Did that vision seal his fate to be murdered? All ahead on our program, right after this short break. You're listening to Seeking Peace on Earth, the Peace Talks radio special. We're revisiting compelling conversations from our series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Paul Ingalls. Some people devoted to peace and social justice feel the best way to promote their wish is to get out in the streets or in the halls of government in a direct action that gets their message out. We're familiar with the time-honored protest march, but some activists have tried to add elements of drama and humor to their direct action, 
thinking it necessary to get the media and the public's attention. We talked with some such practitioners of creative nonviolent action, including Larry Bogad, who's an associate professor at the University of California, Davis. This is a kind of a small-scale thing, but I just wanted to create an op- open up a space for dialogue around this, uh, the issue of, of climate change. A friend of mine has an ice cream truck, and he gives out free ice cream and free political propaganda uh, as a project. So we just converted it into something ironic uh, for, a, for a, a day, and we were sort of giving out the ice cream, and people were stepping up, and I, in my wonderful green suit, uh, and hundred dollar bill tie was explaining to people that this was a new product we were rolling out. Uh, all of this ice cream is made from the last few glaciers on the earth. Uh, we're chopping them up, my company, and we're making popsicles out of them. And you can taste the quality. And of course, some people were shocked by this. Some people got that it was a joke in the first two seconds, and that's fun. And then they laugh a little, and maybe you chat with them a bit about the issues. Uh, and then other people would get a little upset, like, tell me this isn't true. You can't do this. And they would actually become activists in that moment through provocation in a playful way. And of course, my point is not to make them feel uh, bad. So I say, no, good point. This isn't real. <laughs> Let's talk about it. And which I, what I enjoy about that kind of thing is you can actually have a dialogue on the street And instead of it just being, again, about public space, being about consuming and moving on, um, that it can be a space where you can talk about issues and uh, maybe relate to people. Because you've sort of earned the moment uh, by providing something playful and a little bit of playful surprise and respecting people, too. Um, uh, I think that that's important, even with your opponent in the nonviolent sense of things. I think it's important to respect your opponent enough at least to sort of study their beliefs and understand their rituals and the symbols that have great emotional meaning for them and then respond to it, not to simply accept that because you do have differences of principle that you want to engage in, but to understand uh, where they're coming from and then start to be playful along that, along that level. That's Larry Bogad, associate professor at the University of California, Davis. Another troupe of nonviolent activists is known as Code Pink. Their members dress in wild pink, and confront government leaders directly at hearings and appearances, sometimes with humor, sometimes with a dramatic flair. Here's a CNN report of just one such action. It's amazing how much newspaper ink a little red food dye on your hands will get you. At least if those bloody hands are shoved in the face of the Secretary of State. Desiree Farouz from the anti-war group Code Pink and four others ended up getting arrested. That ever-so-arresting image ended up everywhere, from the New York Times' picture of the day to Rosie O'Donnell's blog to conservative websites. It was an opportunity to see her face-to-face, eye-to-eye, woman-to-woman, one-to-one, and let her know what I thought. The White House had harsh words for Code Pink's bloody hands stunt. I think it's despicable, and unfortunately it seems that increasingly Congress is being run by Code Pink. Our host Carol Boss talked with Gail Murphy and Liz Hurricane of Code Pink. Liz was one of those arrested that day in the CNN report. Liz, before you mentioned the word provocative, and there are people whose impressions of Code Pink are are based on some images they've seen on television, and and some of them might be scenes of Code Pink members standing up in congressional sessions or at the Republican National Convention four years ago, holding up signs, sometimes loud, shouting, interrupting, and... The Daily Show on Comedy Central has aired videos that show Code Pink actions, and certainly some of their commentary has not been complimentary. Let's listen. Anyway, things aren't looking much better here at home where everybody wants to make the world a better place, but not everyone channels that desire into useful arenas, as we see on tonight's installment of You're Not Helping. 
Tonight's episode, the General Petraeus hearings. The purse will be removed. Ma'am, I, uh, I assume your intention was to present a cogent counterpoint to General Petraeus, but uh, you're not helping. So when John Stewart, a, a consistent critic of the administration, says you're not helping, how does that feel? Well, I mean, I think good, bad, or indifferent media coverage is going to touch uh, someone that may not be doing something for peace. And, I mean, that was uh, – I, I was in that hearing, and that was a grandmother, a 70-year-old woman that had never uh, done anything uh, as far as going to public hearings and participating in government and policy and legislation. Uh, so, uh, you know, that could be misconstrued that we all do that, but we don't. And, I mean, <clears throat> you know, this war is indecent for me to be a little provocative uh, and get somebody's attention that isn't doing anything – um, you know, generally I try for humor. I just want to read um, briefly a couple of comments about Code Pink submitted from viewers on Comedy Central's website. One woman wrote, I love your message, but I can't stand your methods. I don't see how you expect to be taken seriously acting like this. So please change because, again, a lot of people do agree with you and will take you seriously if you act like sane, rational human beings. So how do you respond to that kind of feedback? Is there the risk the actions themselves will detract from the messages you, you want to convey? Well, I think that uh, there's always the risk that we're going to turn some people off. Um, and as I mentioned to you, we do a lot of s traditional work. You know, We opened an occupation watch center in Baghdad. We wrote reports about the what was going on on the <coughs> ground, knowing that the media would not be reporting back to us the truth. So we've done a lot of very traditional and substantive work. Unfortunately, the media is not interested in that. So if we sit back and just do sort of the think tanky or NGO kind of work uh, and not make a ruckus as they fund billions and billions and billions of dollars to continue the occupation without a strategy, without conditions, without an exit, uh, then we do have to do some radical things. That's, you know, we're able and willing to do both. Gail Murphy and Liz Hurricane of Code Pink. One of our Peace Talks radio episodes asked the question, if people practiced more compassion to animals, would they be more likely to practice compassion to humans? There are programs around the country that are testing out this idea. We talked about them on our show, as well as asked Buddhist scholar Eric Kolvig to share his philosophy of compassion and restraint when it comes to dealing with insects and household pests. Kids love to to smush bugs, to kill bugs. What is that about? What do you think? I think it's about power. I think that uh, children in our society, especially in our society, don't have much power. They're more or less discounted. They're not seen on some level. And so when everybody's got power over them, all of those adults and maybe their older siblings, the one thing they have power over are the smaller creatures. And again, if those children had a sense of the intimacy of all things, they also would refrain from that kind of harming. So you think in, a, in, in ways that would be um, something that would need to be learned by them? In this society, it, it's something that would have to be learned. If you went to a Buddhist society um, like Burma or Cambodia or Thailand, where 
children are taught non-harming from birth, um, their relationship to insects may be different if they essentially take in the values of the culture. Our culture doesn't really have those values, at least not in a, at as a deep a level. Essentially what happens is that we are able to harm living beings, other humans and other living beings, including insects, because we feel somehow separate from them and they're somehow other. And as you go deeper and deeper into this practice, that sense of separation falls away and more and more you feel connection so that at the deepest level, at the deepest level of intimacy, you no longer distinguish between self and other. When you get to that place, you would as, as much, for example, kill another living being, including insects, as you would kill yourself, or I would kill you, Carol. And if I can just give you an example, I was backpacking in the Grand Canyon many years ago, and I was at Cottonwood Camp, um, right at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, um, deep in the wilderness, but they happened to have a working urinal in there, and in the morning, I was using the urinal, and I looked down, and there was a scorpion caught in the urinal. And I went to the ranger, and I said, what, what do we do? And she said, just flush it down. And I went and got stu sticks. And I very carefully, it took a long time, because, you know, it was a scorpion with sticks. You know, in all the urine, I, I, uh, I managed to, to, to get the scorpion, take it out, and release it. And it went sort of dragging off, you know, dragging wet behind it. And I can't tell you the happiness I felt. And that was... 28 years ago, and I still feel connected to that scorpion. For years and years now, I've captured the insects in my house and released them, including the black widow spiders. Um, I, I have a little uh, bug catcher, actually, that's battery-powered. It sucks the bugs in, and then you take them out and you release them. And so it's just really about establishing the habit. And my suggestion to anyone who's listening who hasn't tried this, next time you see a spider... You know, get a glass and a piece of paper, get the spider under the glass, sl slip the paper over the, over the top, and take it out and release it, and notice how you feel when you take it out and release it. Did you have a moment in your life, um, perhaps after um, practicing and studying Buddhism, where you had uh, a life-changing experience? In, in That's a, a, a really beautiful question. I grew up in rural New Hampshire in the 1940s and 50s, and it was very much a hunting culture. It was simply assumed that men, it was really part of your identity as a man to be a hunter. And I resisted that from the time I was a small child, but at some point when I was around nine, my brother had gone out duck hunting with a friend of his, and I felt left, left out, so I grabbed a rifle. I went to a crow blind that my brother had. This was when I was nine years old, thereabouts. And I was sitting quietly in the blind waiting for crows to come, and a quail actually walked into the blind. It was, it was about two feet from my extended feet. And I very slowly brought the rifle around and shot the quail at point-blank range. And as soon as I had done that, I felt horror. Sorry. <laughs> I'm still very affected by this. Um, and that was the moment when I decided I would never kill another living being. Um, so it happened to me long before I got to Buddhism. 
You know, maybe if there are multiple lives, I've been through this routine before. <laughs> Meditation teacher Eric Kolvig with our Carol Boss. We're going to close our special show today with part of our visit with author and researcher James Douglas, who in 2008 released the book JFK and the Unspeakable, Why He Died and Why It Matters. Douglas believes John F. Kennedy's assassination very well may have been perpetrated by forces inside his own government, who were unhappy with JFK's turn toward peace, which he laid out in a speech at American University in June of 1963, less than six months before his assassination on the streets in Dallas. I would hope we could, first of all, remember the context in which it occurred at the height of the Cold War when it was regarded as heresy (laughs) from a theological standpoint to talk with the devil, um, Khrushchev, Uh, Castro, anybody on the other side, any communist. And here is Kennedy in his American University address challenging his listeners, uh, not only the students and the faculty at this uh, campus in Washington, D.C., but all of the American people, to look at our own involvement in the Cold War and to see that the problem is not simply what about the Russians, which was always the question raised in those days, that you can't trust the Russians, but what about ourselves? What about our motives? What about our inability to see the absolute necessity for peace in the nuclear age if we and all of humanity are to survive? What kind of a peace do I mean, and what kind of a peace do we seek? Not a Pax Americana, enforced on the world by American weapons of war, I am talking about genuine peace, the kind of peace that makes life on earth worth living, the kind that enables men and nations to grow and to hope and build a better life for their children, not merely peace for Americans, but peace for all men and women, not merely peace in our time, but peace in all time. I speak of peace because of the new face of war. Total war makes no sense in an age where great powers can maintain large and relatively invulnerable nuclear forces and refuse to surrender without resort to those forces. It makes no sense in an age where a single nuclear weapon contains almost ten times the explosive force delivered by all the Allied Air Forces in the Second World War. It makes no sense in an age when the deadly poisons produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the globe and a generations yet unborn. I speak of peace, therefore, as the necessary rational end of rational men. I realize the pursuit of peace is not as dramatic as the pursuit of war, and frequently the words of the pursuers fall on deaf ears, but we have no more urgent task. Some say that it is useless to speak of peace until the leaders of the Soviet Union adopt a more enlightened attitude. I hope they do. I believe we can help them do it. But I also believe that we must re-examine our own attitudes as individuals and as a nation. 
for our attitude is as essential as theirs. And every graduate of this school, every thoughtful citizen who despairs of war and wishes to bring peace should begin by looking inward, by examining his own attitude towards the possibilities of peace, towards the Soviet Union, towards the course of the Cold War, and towards freedom and peace here at home. We must all, in our daily lives, live up to the age-old faith that peace and freedom walk together. When a man's way please the Lord, the scriptures tell us, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. And is not peace, in the last analysis, basically a matter of human rights, the right to live out our lives without fear of devastation, the right to breathe air as nature provided it, the right of future generations to a healthy existence. While we proceed to safeguard our national interests, let us also safeguard human interests. And the elimination of war and arms is clearly in the interests of both. This generation of Americans has already had enough, more than enough, of war and hate and oppression. We shall be prepared if others wish it. We shall be alert to try to stop it. But we shall also do our part to build a world of peace where the weak are safe and the strong are just. We are not helpless before that task or hopeless of its success. Confident and unafraid, we must labor on, not towards a strategy of annihilation, but towards a strategy of peace. President John F. Kennedy speaking of his hope for peace in June of 1963. Words that author James Douglas thinks are just as important to hear today. For links to the full programs from which today's excerpts came, you can visit our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can hear all of the programs in our series going back to 2003. Also there, you can order CDs, sign up for a free podcast or a newsletter, and it's also where you can make a tax-deductible contribution to our nonprofit media organization that produces this program. Donations from people like you help us continue this work to protect part of the media landscape for talk about peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Any amount will help, so I encourage you to do your part. Visit peacetalksradio.com. Additional support comes from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation, the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, the Peace Tales CD Project at peacetales.org, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Allie Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Carol Boss and Suzanne Kreider, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.